This is episode 37 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. Another week, another ATN, stretching the definition of the word Tuesday. Not much to say here today. I'm trying to get this recording done and posted before I go bloviate into a microphone for two more hours with fellow podcaster Darren O'Neill. Some say we're putting the old band back together. I don't know about that, but we do seem to be just picking up and doing more podcasts where we left off. The toughest part of juggling two podcasts is when I come across a story that really deserves my wrath. And now I have to decide which show it should be addressed on. I don't know how Darren does it with four shows, especially since he's likely recording random thoughts at this very moment as well. I try to keep the highly technical stuff here and keep the political stuff there, but there's bound to be some overlap. Oh well, screw it. If you really like my voice that much, you'll listen to both shows and suffer the feeling of deja vu that comes along with it. Anyway, this is the second week in a row that we've done an episode of Grumpy Old Ben's on Wednesday. I hesitate to call it a normal time because you know how afraid of commitment I am, but this thing may actually be happening. Don't call it a comeback. We were never here to begin with. From the Wireless Insecurity Department, Tesla, the Silicon Valley company that slaps wheels on a smartphone and calls them cars, have again demonstrated their dedication to security at the smartphone level. Teslas don't have keys. The way to authenticate yourself to a Tesla is through NFC, either through the key fob, their phone app, or a wallet-ready key card that the company supplies. The latter of these, the card, is intended for, quote, when your phone is not accessible, out of battery, or if someone else needs temporary access, such as a valet, according to the Tesla website. The original idea behind these swipe cards is that you scan the card against a particular spot on the outside of the car to unlock it, and then you place the card on a scanner in the center console in order to drive it. Last August, the company, presumably responding to whiny owners who thought it was too inconvenient to have to put the card on the console, issued a software patch, sacrificing that security to the altar of convenience. The patch made it so that anyone inside the car could start it and drive away as long as it was within a couple minutes, 130 seconds to be precise, of when you scanned the card. Of course, it wouldn't be Silicon Valley if they didn't inadvertently weaken security a lot when they meant to only weaken it a little. According to security researcher Martin Herford, all kinds of actions are authorized during that two-minute window, up to and including the creation of a new key and adding it to the car. Herford re- released a video showing the proof of concept using an app he wrote which communicates with the car via its Bluetooth API. In the video, the driver swipes the NFC card to open the door and the thief's iPad a couple meters away lights up. He adds a new user to the car and registers a new Bluetooth key to the app on his iPad all before the two-minute timer runs out. Sometime later, Herford demonstrates unlocking the car and driving it away using only the iPad app. The app, called Tesla KEE, is available for download on Google Play and iOS App Store as a more secure and private alternative to Tesla's official app. It has a number of security features that monitor the car's sensors and let you control what gets seen sent over the internet. Though the version you can download obviously does not have the car-stealing functionality. To be clear, this attack does require a user to swipe the NFC card. 
Most Tesla users authenticate via their Bluetooth app, but Herford points out that an attacker could easily use a Bluetooth jammer to force you to use alternative means to unlock your car. Once that happens, for the next 130 seconds, the car will lift its skirts for any Bluetooth-enabled device within range. There's no notification, no indication on the car's screen or the owner's app that a new key has been issued. The attacker can then come back hours or days later equipped with their forged key and drive off with a brand new stolen car. Now that this vulnerability is out in the open, one can expect the software company to push an over-the-air update with a fix for this security issue. For the sake of Tesla owners everywhere, we hope that update doesn't introduce yet another vulnerability for security researchers to find. Meanwhile, any Tesla owners who are concerned they may fall prey to this manner of car theft are encouraged to instead drive a car from a company that doesn't move fast and break things. Because I know very few of you will follow that bit of advice, I would point out that enabling the Tesla pin to drive feature will also pre help prevent your car from being stolen by adding an extra factor of authentication. Yes, I acknowledge that entering a pin before you can drive your car represents a significant downgrade inconvenience, but look at the bright side. You might just get to keep your car. As for me, I shall continue to use the antiquated method of authenticating myself to my car by inserting a specially shaped bit of metal into a narrow hole with pins designed to detect its shape. It isn't perfect security, but at least the car thief has to step out of the bushes and physically touch my car to steal it. From the dark browsers of power department. Yet another computing era has come to a close. A giant of software has officially passed, although I doubt too many will mourn its passing. I speak, of course, of Internet Explorer, which officially went out of mainstream servicing as of the 15th of this month. The browser is now out of support and will no longer receive any updates at all, not even security. The passing of Internet Explorer 11, a staple of Windows 7, 8, and early Win 10, means also the end of the Trident HTML engine, developed and used entirely in-house at Microsoft. The loss of Trident is a blow to the diversity of the browser ecosystem, leaving only two browser engine families in widespread use on the web. WebKit slash Blink, used by all Safari and Chromium-based browsers, including IE's successor Microsoft Edge, and Gecko, used by Firefox and its derivatives. Of course, if you ask most web developers, many of whom gave up on browser diversity years ago, develop only in CPU grinding JS frameworks and test only in Chrome while leaving all users of every other browser to fend for themselves, they will tell you that nothing of value has been lost. The next step, I suppose, is for Mozilla to give up support for its 24-year-old Gecko engine and convert Firefox entirely to Chromium. This move is neither announced nor rumored, but it would only take a few significant cash payouts and would make for some really salacious tech news headlines. If that happens, Google will have finally realized its dream of one browser to rule them all, one browser to bind us, one browser to collect our data, and in the database monetize us, in Mountain View, where the AI lies. From the Riding the Spiral Department. A quick update on the Netflix death spiral, as described in Angry Tech News number 32. Last week, the company announced layoffs of 300 employees, or about 4% of its worldwide workforce, on top of the 150 employees laid off last month. And now, Netflix's co-CEO Ted Sarandos has confirmed in an interview that the company will be introducing an ad-supported tier of their service in order to scrape the barrel for that lucrative disengaged demographic. 
We've left a big customer segment off the table, which is people who say, hey, Netflix is too expensive for me and I don't mind advertising. Too expensive? Don't mind ads? Okay, first of all, I'm a podcaster and even I can afford $15 a month. When writing up my monthly budget, I'm not sitting here deciding, hey, I can either watch one in-theater movie alone with no drinks or popcorn as long as I catch the discount matinee, or I can have unlimited shitty B-movies piped right into my house. It's hardly a question. The only reason anybody might think Netflix is expensive is because the company keeps jacking up rates and forcing people to reevaluate over and over again whether they need the service at all. Secondly, wake up call. Netflix, everybody minds ads. Some people put up with them better than others, and many even value their time so little that they're willing to watch YouTube without an ad blocker, but nobody likes ads. You walk up to anybody on the street or in their living room and give them the A-B test between content they pay for and content they pay for interspersed with corporate marketing, nobody is going to choose the latter. But of course, Mr. Sarandos already knew that, which is why the ad tier will come at a lower subscription cost, most likely, than Netflix's current bottom tier. For now. Advertising is down across all media in this Biden economy, and Netflix will not be making up the shortfall from their massive subscriber loss by going to ads. What they will do is cheapen their service, reducing the perceived value the next time they force all of their users to reevaluate whether or not it's worth paying for. Streaming services are a luxury good. Luxury goods are always first up on the chopping block during any down economy. And I don't think I need to tell you that viewers who are forced to sit through ads are not the most engaged or loyal. And so I predict that within the next year, prices will go up on all of the non-ad tiers, followed by a price increase for the ad tier, because why not? They might even bring ads to their current low-cost, non-premium tier. At first, there will only be maybe one pre-roll ad per show, annoying but tolerable if you're binge-watching a half-hour sitcom, hardly a thing for a two-hour movie. But soon enough, it'll be two pre-roll ads, then three, then interstitial ad breaks with three more. You know, the YouTube model. And thus, Netflix continues their death spiral. I don't know what the way out of it is. I'd be a good candidate for CEO if I did. Maybe making quality unwoke content and a user interface that doesn't suck balls. Who knows? What I do know is that nickeling and diming your customers and degrading your product offering is the way down the spiral, not up it. From the You For Sale department. While we're on the topic of tech companies doing shifty things. Oh, wait, when are we not on that topic? T-Mobile has just officially released its new marketing platform, App Insights, which is a great marketing name. It tells you nothing while still being trademarkable. It's been in beta for the last year. App Insights is an analytic platform which tracks users' app usage to bucket users into demographic categories for targeted advertising. Based on which apps are used on your phone, you might be bucketed into any number of categories such as, I'm spitballing here, business traveler, teenager, stay-at-home parent, violent protester, podcaster, impressionable toddler, Trump supporter, or useless eater. Having been thus categorized, you are now worth much more money to T-Mobile when sold to advertisers who want to target your demographic. T-Mobile does this by tracking which apps and web domains you access using their network. They are your ISP, after all. If you don't find this to be creepy, then you clearly haven't been paying attention to my podcast. The company is quick to point out that they do have some privacy safeguards. At launch, they say they will not be including any location data, which suggests to me that they have thought about it and will be adding it only if they can figure out how to make it not sound stalkerish. 
They also say they are not tracking data from iOS devices, any at all. One reason given for this is that Apple killed the IDFA, the device-specific advertising identifier, in iOS 14. Another reason given by the article is that T-Mobile doesn't want to, quote, get on Apple's bad side, a sure sign that T-Mobile knows damn well what they're doing is end-user hostile, but they think they can get away with it on other platforms. With the official launch of App Insights, the program is now enabled by default for all T-Mobile users, except iOS. If you happen to be a T-Mobile user and don't think you should be subject to this sort of data collection, you can easily opt out by canceling your T-Mobile plan and moving to a carrier that still has some respect for customer privacy. Ha! I kid, like such a carrier exists. Well, to my knowledge, none of the others are quite that brazen yet, but give them time. No, the way T-Mobile lets you opt out of app-based tracking is, of course, to download an app. The company offers an app called Magenta Marketing Platform Choices, which lets you view which companies have your data and to opt out of having it sold to specific ones. California residents can also download the App Choices app supplied by the Digital Advertising Alliance as mandated by California law. Because I'm sure an organization called Digital Advertising Alliance is completely on board with not being advertised to. Yeah, 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 right. And so once again, the uncarrier continues to make a name for itself by not doing the same things that other carriers do like respecting your privacy, for example. And finally, from the whoops department, Toyota has submitted a recall of its line of BZ4X electric SUVs. According to the recall notice, during certain sharp turns, a hub bolt could come loose, causing the wheel to fall off. The model, Toyota's first mass-produced electric vehicle, has been on the market for two months. The Subaru Solterra, jointly developed with Toyota, is being recalled for the same reason. There have as yet been no crashes associated with this defect. No scathing remarks here. The electric vehicle industry is still in its infancy, and mistakes are bound to happen. I do just wish that idiot legislators and bureaucrats, most of whom are long on social justice and short on common sense, would realize this before trying to force us all into untested rolling death traps. Just saying. Angry thanks go out to Sir Spud the Mighty, Sean McCune, Progo, Rhett Vandenberg, Steve Edwards, Curtis Peterson, and Rachel Zimmerman for their regular support of Angry Tech News. You may have noticed that I've read every single one of these names before, which means that my suggestion from a few shows ago to go out and subject new people to ATN was not well received. This show survives on its sustaining producers, and we love you for it. But to grow, we also need the occasional new name. I need you to start suggesting this show to all of your friends, family, casual acquaintances, business partners, and people you see in the street. Just chase them down. They'll usually just cower. Very few of them will fight back. If you don't do that, I may actually have to do some marketing. And you know how angry that would make me. Fiat also isn't the only way to support this show. You can send cryptocurrency using a podcasting 2.0 ready app from newpodcastapps.com. Doing that just this week were Rev Cyber Trucker, Boosty Steed, Sean McCune, Servo, Comic Strip Blogger, Harry Pilgrim, and an anonymous who sent 33333 sats but didn't include a name. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $30, $50, or 3,333. 
That's it for now. I'm Ryan Vemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Vemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry.